so if you were looking at the uh, bulletin this week, you've noticed, no doubt, that I kind of bared my, uh, my heart, as it were, a painful experience in my life, uh, one ongoing because I still care about this particular friend that I seem to have lost and uh, don't know why. Um, I know for a fact that if I were to hear today that, that this gentleman was undergoing some major kind of a health struggle, I would happily purchase a ticket to go see him, even though, for some reason, this guy has not accepted my phone calls now for well over a dozen years. And we were the best of friends. I have pictures of him in my wedding album. He literally walked me down the aisle. As I say, it was like he was giving me away. He was my closest friend. And uh, me, dressed in a white tuxedo, he in a nice brown one, looking so dapper, and the two of us walking towards this journey where I would begin my married relationship with Nancy. My friend Jerry, I miss him a lot. Do you know what it's like to lose a friend or friends? Any of you? Raise your hand. You know what it's like. It's painful, isn't it? Today we want to talk a little bit about that and a, and a little bit also how that relates, as it were, to, to God and to the theme that we've, we're going to be looking at for a couple of weeks, uh, that of uh, you know, God's care and love for disabled people. Back some time ago, you'll remember, we studied the Ten Commandments, right? And we saw that the scriptures teach a three-pronged approach to Sabbath-keeping. Right? And it involves people, it involves creatures, it involves the land itself. And these broader sort of uh, aspects of Sabbath keeping come from seeing three things come together in the Bible. The weekly seventh-day Sabbath, the sabbatical seventh year, and the year of Jubilee, the 50th year. And together these three strands link God's care for people, for creatures, and the world itself, our world itself. And of course, when we did that series, we asked ourselves some serious questions. Do we make our Sabbath keeping significant? Do we in our daily lifestyle and in our Sabbath keeping extend our care to these three core elements of our world? as God himself does, as he seems to want us to do. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, we read, So there is a Sabbath rest still waiting for the people of God, still waiting for us to realize, as it were, what God wants us to do in our lives. Well, today we're studying about God's care for a person. And so we're picking up John chapter 5, in the scriptures, and we're reading there. Inside the city of Jerusalem, the, near the Sheep Gate, was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? 
I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well. So stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. And so the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working, and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. And so Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. In fact, the father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you will truly be astonished. Later, but in the same conversation, Jesus said to the Jewish leaders in John chapter 5, verses 41 to 42, your approval means nothing to me because I know you don't have God's love within you. So here Jesus is making it very clear what the issue is behind the Sabbath and behind Sabbath-keeping. It is love. It is love. It is God's love in giving us the Sabbath, and it is God's love bubbling up inside of our hearts, leading us to express compassion for others, for creatures, and for the land itself that God has made. But what does the story also teach us about God's care for disabled people? You know, that's what we're considering for a few weeks. So I want to look at this story again, just parts of it. I would like to go step by step through it, but it would maybe take a little longer, and we are going to Harris Park today. So inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the Pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Now, I don't know about you, but I have been around animals. We raised cows, right? Any of you raised cows or sheep or horses? Yeah, maybe even a lot of dogs. And do you know that when you've got a lot of creatures together, there is a smell, right? 
It may be the smell of them rolling around in the dirt or the muck or, for that matter, in the manure. And then there's the manure that comes along. There is a smell that comes from a lot of animals. And this sheep gate was there for a reason. All those sacrifices, right? People buying sheep and stuff. A lot of animals means a lot of noise and a lot of stench. I mean, who knows what you would have had to walk through just to get to the pool of Bethesda? How would you like to spend hours and hours of your time there with that kind of stench and that kind of noise? The bleeding of sheep all day long? Ouch. Now, it's true that some person or some group of people had built some sheltered areas around the pool to keep the sick and the disabled from baking during the hot sun, which Jerusalem sees plenty of, or from freezing. I mean, Jerusalem is at some altitude, so it can get cold there. But what I seriously doubt when I read about five of uh, you know, these porches is I seriously doubt that there was uh, enough space, enough covered space to meet the needs. In her book, Desire of Ages, Ellen White talks about the hundreds of people who came there. What I'm trying to say is even though somebody threw them a bone and they built a shelter for them, I'm pretty sure the shelter was inadequate to meet the need. But here in this smelly, noisy, and overcrowded place were all these sick and disabled people, and there very deliberately went Jesus amongst the sickness, the stench, the noise, and the overcrowding went Jesus very deliberately. Jesus always meets us where we are, exactly where we are. And it doesn't matter what re reason we may be living in squalor. It may be of our own doing, or we, we may be forced to live in squalor. Jesus will still meet us there. As I was imagining this scene in the pool of Bethesda, I started thinking about, well, what it would be like. I believe that there were folk there who were probably transported from some nearby home. But I also believe that a good number of them would have been homeless. They would have actually spent a great deal of their time around that pool and under uh, those uh, shelters. I believe that the shelters were inadequate to house the number of people who came. And I further believe that it was kind of in a bad section of the town. I mean, Sheepgate living is not that fun, let alone overcrowding. I believe that a good deal of these people probably endured a shortage of food. I mean, what are you going to do? If you're, if you're unwell enough to get up and walk and put yourself in the pool, how are you going to go to the local market to get yourself lunch? Somebody may have provided it, but I doubt it was adequate enough. Some of the people who were around that pool were variously unpleasant. They were dangerous, and they were even endangered. So let me speak to that a little bit. When I say variously unpleasant, I mean, here's somebody, for example, who doesn't look too good because of maybe uh, their medical problem. 
maybe they don't dress quite correctly because they're not all there together, or maybe they don't have good clothes anymore, and so what you're seeing is not so pleasant. Or maybe they don't bathe frequently enough, and so the odor isn't good. Maybe they didn't wash themselves from the stuff they walked through as they made it to the pool of Bethesda, as they walked past the sheep gate, right? And these people were dangerous. In uh, Desire of Ages, Ellen White talks about many times at those various seasons when this water would somehow be agitated, they would make such a rush to get into the pool first that they would literally stomp to death people who were in their way. They were dangerous. And of course, I've met plenty of people who have various issues who are just simply cranky. Dangerous. They were also endangered. If it's true that they stomped some people to death, it's true some people were stomped to death. They were endangered by being there for lots of reasons. All those sick people, can you imagine one bug, as it were, passing from one to the other? One disease, one problem after another? They were endangered, maybe from the, from the weather, maybe from the lack of food. Endangered. They had all become superstitious. I'll say more about that after a bit. They believed that not only uh, when the water began to stir up, that somehow an angel of the Lord had caused it, but they also believed that if they were the first people in the water after it had been agitated, that they would be healed. That's superstition. And then, of course, they had become self-centered. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get into the pool first, regardless of how that impacts you. And I imagine there were many other avenues for being self-centered. Now, that's how I look at this story. And I'm going to say very honestly, when I look at that list, it reminds me of a lot of the situations many cities in the United States and other parts of the world are facing when they consider what's happening with homeless people, right? It's a problem not only for the community, but it's seriously a problem for those people who are homeless. Do we think of them as well as ourselves? This place, we're told, was jam-packed with people, which only increases the stench, the noise, and the danger. So what was their superstition about? Well, some versions include words like these. That they were around the pool, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons and stirred up the water, and whoever went first was made well. Now, what's interesting, of course, about this is that most, well, let's start it. Some early biblical manuscripts have the words that I've put in yellow, but not the words that I've put in orange on the slide. Others have the orange words, but not the yellow words. The earliest and best biblical manuscripts don't have either. It's just simply not included. Most scholars and translators believe that these words were added later to explain what the man said when he mentioned about the water being agitated or bubbling up. 
And so this was added later by someone else, not the biblical writer. And so many translations, modern versions, no longer include it at all. Some in a footnote, many not at all. Now our own Ellen White, in commenting about uh, this particular passage, said this. At certain seasons, the waters of this pool were agitated. Okay, no biggie there. And it was commonly believed that this was the result of supernatural power and that whoever first stepped into the waters would be healed. So here, Ellen White seems to at least agree in principle with what, you know, I guess what people, lay folk often call critical scholarship. At the very least, what we can say is the result is the same. God does not heal people like this. And therefore, the thoughts that we find in the left-hand column are pretty much bogus, superstition. She talks about it as being common belief or tradition. Now, there are tons of supposed cures for various ailments, right? I mean, if I can remember back in the day before I moved here to Walla Walla, and I would come to visit Nancy's parents. Nancy grew up right here in the valley. And I would come here with her to visit the in-laws. And I cannot tell you how many times when I came, there was a new fad about what to eat in order to enjoy optimum health. Do you know how many diet plans have, have made their way through this valley? It's unreal. Unreal. And some of them so crazy sounding, I don't know why anyone would believe them, let alone Seventh-day Adventists who have a lot of health material available to them. Many common beliefs are simply fake. Shams, bogus things. The man was sick for 38 years, we read. That's an awful long time, and my heart goes out to him. I mean, I've already you know, had this broken arm problem I'm trying to get over, and my hand's still not working, and I'm impatient as all get out. Uh, and it's only been months. But one of the things you find when you read the Bible is that it takes an express interest in how long a person has been sick. I mean, we read about this woman who suffered from some kind of a bleeding problem, whatever that might have been, for 12 years. Another woman bent double for 18 years. A man who was born blind, a man who was lame from birth, a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed for eight years. Why do you think there's this kind of interest in how long someone has been suffering in the scriptures? Anybody want to take a shot at it? Why do you think there's this interest? To show how powerful the miracle was, okay? How powerful God is, right? Yeah, I'd agree with that. And how merciful God is uh, in keeping track not only of the problem that we have, but even how long we've had it. Would you agree with me? Now, it's a dual-edged sword a little bit. Let's be honest. I mean, you have to say, well, why did God wait 38 years? I mean, I would say that. But many of us today are in desperate situations as well, right? 
We suffer from chronic physical mental health conditions, and we want to know where is God while we're suffering these things. Where is he? What's he going to do for us? We've struggled with our problems for a very long time. Does God care that we're struggling year after year? Does he care? But God does know what ails us, and he knows how long it's been ailing us. In John chapter 5, we read about this man's situation. I have no one to put me into the pool. Not having friends or family around when we are suffering some problem only increases our pain. Only increases our pain. She's not here, so I think I'm going to spend a minute talking about her. We have a woman who usually sits right here in the front whose husband just died a couple weeks ago, right? Donna Olson is her name. Donna suffers from macular degeneration of the eyes. Did you know that? And what that means is that she doesn't feel safe driving. So her husband did all the driving, and of course they were both retired, so that wasn't a problem. If she had a medical appointment or she wanted to go shopping or whatever she wanted to do, he was available to do it. But now he's gone. And she has to rely on family members who work full-time. Isn't that an opportunity for you and me? To visit her? To help her? And, and some of you may be in situations similar. And maybe I don't know about your situation, but I'd like to become aware of it and, and extend in some way to maybe individuals I know in the church who could help you some help. Because when you're alone and you're suffering, man, it's difficult. And this guy is talking about real life. I don't have anyone to help me. No one. Ugh. What a desperate situation that is. I... I mean, I had my broken arm, right? And I needed my lawn mowed. And, and some of you came over and mowed my lawn. Thank you. I needed it. I'm finally able now to, to, to be able to mow my lawn. Um, first time I did it, it really hurt. Second time, not as bad. But couldn't get it done at all at first. I appreciated the help that I received. In each case, I think, where someone has uh, this kind of difficulty, uh, there's an opportunity for us to stand by them and to, to give them the aid that God wants us to give them. But like so many people today, this man had no one. Do you remember these Bible stories? They describe other people who were healed who had friends and resources. In Mark chapter 2, we read about Four guys who were carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. And these four guys dug a hole through the roof above Jesus' head. And they lowered their friend on his mat right down in front of Jesus. You remember that story? He's got resources. He's got friends. And then there's this uh, royal official son, I, I think is the story. And John chapter 4. And, and this boy has servants to care for him. And a father who is very eager to go somewhere and actually plead with Jesus to heal the boy. This 
boy has resources. But our man in John chapter 5, at what he thought was a critical junction in his life, when this water would be agitated, he had no one. Do the disabled people in our church, in our community, have folk they can rely on them? They can rely on when they need the help? Do we regularly help others who have needs like this? We read Jesus telling the man, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Have you asked yourself, why didn't Jesus say anything to this man about faith? Why didn't Jesus insist, if you only believe, all things are possible to him who believes? Why didn't Jesus mention faith in this story? I mean, it's in sharp contrast with the two stories we just talked about in John 2 and 4. There, faith is highlighted. And I'm going to go there in just a minute, but in just for now, I want to say, like Jesus, are you and I engaging in acts of mercy without expecting conversions? You know, do we do things good for other people with no strings attached? No glow tracks we're handing to them. I'm not saying giving glow tracks is bad. I'm just saying, are there times you don't? You do the good and you let it stand as it is? So you remember that story about the paralytic? The holes carved in the roof. Jesus looks up and he sees their faith. So he heals the man. In the royal official's son's story, Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my little boy dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. So he himself believed, and not just himself, but his entire household. Faith comes to bear on the situation, but in this story, there's no talk of it, none whatsoever. Yeah, I think the man did believe. I think the man believed Jesus' word when he said, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. I believe his faith went out to Jesus, but that's his choice. Jesus didn't ask him to. In fact, over and over, we read this thought. When somebody says, who healed you? He goes, I don't know. Obviously, not a story of faith at this point, right? Not a story of faith. What are our motives for doing good to other people? Is it so they'll join our church? Or like Jesus, are you and I engaging in acts of mercy without expecting anything in return? We can't talk about this story, it seems to me, and can't talk about the Sabbath healing without at least addressing Jesus' instruction to pick up his mat and walk. 
Jesus deliberately told this man, I want you to do something that will publicize your healing. Now, the man didn't take it that way. I'm sure he took it as a normal course, pick up your bed and walk away. I mean, because he didn't need to use his bed at the pool of Bethesda anymore. But what Jesus was, in fact, was saying to him was, I want you to publicize this miracle for me. I mean, if it weren't for that, Matt, there would have been no discussion, no disagreement between Jesus and the Jewish leadership, right? In fact, they wouldn't even known that he had been healed. They probably had no clue who this guy was. Do you remember the story in John chapter 9 that we read just a week ago? Even the neighbors of the blind man didn't recognize him once he had been healed. Do you, would you expect that the Jewish leadership would somehow learn or figure out who this guy was if he was just walking down the street, not carrying his mat? They wouldn't have known him from anyone else in the crowd. That mat led to a big-time disagreement. In the Jewish Mishnah, Tractate Shabbat 7.2, you can read 39 rules for supposedly true Sabbath keeping. Write that down and Google it sometime. Mishnah, Tractate, Shabbat, 7.2. 39 rules for true Sabbath keeping. And one of those rules was that it was not something you should do. You should not transport an object between a private space and a public space. Or if you were in a public space, you should not carry what you were carrying for more than four cubits, four times 18 inches. Jesus is doing something we used to say was picking his battles. And in this case, he was asking for the fight. Now, the little Jesus, meek and mild we learn about in children's Sabbath school doesn't show up in the book of John much. Uh, in the book of John, Jesus doesn't mind taking it, taking his fight to uh, the opposition um, from time to time. And he's picking his battles. He does not agree with these additional rules whether it, because he believes they were written and spoken by man, supposedly to guard the edges of the Sabbath. He believes they are a mess. But we have to ask ourselves, I mean, this guy's been sick for 38 years. What difference would it make Jesus to come on the next day, on Sunday? I mean, there wouldn't be any argument, no fighting and scrapping then. Why not wait? Or why not say to the guy, have a great day, and let him just walk away without carrying his mat? Did you know that our own writer, Ellen White, highlights this? Jesus had come to free the Sabbath from those burdensome requirements that had made it a curse instead of a blessing. Any of you know of additional rules to Sabbath keeping that made your life a curse instead of a blessing as you were growing up, maybe as a Sabbath keeper? For this reason, Jesus had chosen. Oh, are you kidding me? For this reason, Jesus had chosen the Sabbath upon which to perform the act of healing at Bethesda. 
He could have healed the sick man as well on any other day of the week, or he might simply have cured him without bidding him bear away his bed. She's very cognizant of what Jesus could have done, but did not. Clearly, Jesus wanted to bring this issue to light. He wanted to wage a battle over how to truly keep the Sabbath. Yes, he did. I want this fight, Jesus said. How do you and I regularly keep the Sabbath? Like Jesus, do we engage in acts of mercy that don't carry any expectation of any kind? Do you remember also what this disagreement between Jesus and the religious teachers tells us about? When I grew up as a kid, I can remember someone saying to me, whatever can be done on some other day than the Sabbath should be done on some other day than the Sabbath. And they acted as if this was a hard and fast rule that came somewhere around like the 11th commandment. You know, it was literally written on stone. And while I think that's a great rule of thumb, Jesus made it very clear it's a rule of thumb. And a rule of thumb is a general thing. It's not always operative. It's not hard and fast. In fact, you want a hard and fast application of this rule, read Luke 13. And there you'll uh, see a synagogue ruler who expresses this idea forcefully. Jesus obviously taking issue again, another one of those Sabbath healings. But what we can see from Scripture and even from Ellen White is that Jesus downsized this rule to a general concept. Making it clear, hey, there are some things that are simply too important to wait. You should never wait. It doesn't matter whether it's the Sabbath or not. You should always just jump right in and do it. It's too important not to. In fact, these stories are teaching us that there are some things that are so in harmony with the principles of the Sabbath, they should clearly be done on the Sabbath. You should even take time out to do them on the Sabbath. So when I read all five of these Sabbath miracle stories, I came to three conclusions. Jesus chose to heal these people without being asked to do so in every case. Jesus even sought some of these people out so that he could heal them. He didn't just run into them along the way. Jesus chose to send a message about true Sabbath keeping through these stories. What should we do on the seventh-day Sabbath? Well, if you read Desire of Ages, Owen White speaks to using the Sabbath for healthful rest, to worship, to holy deeds, and then she fleshes out the holy deeds part, and she says we should attend to the necessities of life, we should care for the sick, we should supply the wants of the needy, we should relieve suffering. All of that sounds really good. Now the question is, what does it mean? What are the necessities of life in an urban setting? Would they be different than a rural setting? What are the uh, wants of the needy? And did she use the word wants just because she didn't want to use the word needs and then use needy? Or did she use the word wants deliberately? I'm not sure. I can't tell for sure. 
Now, we could stop right there, but the story of the man doesn't. We read Jesus finding, about, finding the man afterwards, after some of this conflict had gone on. And he tells the man, stop sinning now that you're well or something even worse may happen to you. The Gospel of John is very clear, especially in the story of the man born blind, right? Which we read last week. Uh, not everybody's medical problems are related to their sins. Not their sins, nor the sins of their parents. It has nothing at all to do with that. But some health issues, according to Jesus, are linked to our sins. And so those of us are suffering from them, we get to ask God, uh, make this clear to me. Are my problems my problems that I've caused? Is my physical or mental health issue uh, my fault? Now what's great about this particular verse is it comes after Jesus has healed him. Jesus didn't say to the man, look, I'm only going to heal you if you stop doing A, B, or C. Jesus healed him and then later had an opportunity to give him some great advice. Look, you're out of the woods now. Don't put yourself back in it in an even worse place. Don't do that to yourself. Now, there's no talk about forgiveness some people see in this story, and yet there is, because this isn't the only place in the Bible where the healing of the man in the pool of Bethesda is mentioned. We find in John 7, 23, Jesus said, I healed a man's whole body, meaning I did more for him than just make him physically well, mentally well, spiritually well. I did it all for him. The healing that Jesus brings us is holistic. So we've reflected today on a variety of things. We've looked at a list that challenges us as we think about the homeless people in our own valley, helping people right here. Uh, Jesus sought this man out in this environment. He was an integral part, uh, not only of, of the man's healing, but the man himself was an integral part of his environment. I mean, he was in that camp for 38 years. What does this say to us as we discuss and we worry about homeless shelters and encampments? What are we doing as followers of Jesus and citizens of this valley to help people who are in these kinds of situations? Jesus didn't sit back and just complain. He did something good. We're also reminded that Jesus engaged in acts of kindness and compassion without an expectation. Are we doing that too? Helping others without any expectation? And then these two ideas, well, frankly, they're going to fly in the face of most Sabbath keepers uh, because that's not the way we define Sabbath keeping for the most part. Jesus challenged us all with these words, especially Sabbath keepers. And then I think I want to leave you with this question. Are you and I living a life of true greatness? Jesus made it clear that meeting the needs of disabled and sick people is part of a life of greatness. Are we living a life of greatness?